Hello and welcome to the Soccer History USA podcast. On today's episode, Stephen Apostoloff. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thank you, Brian. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to be uh, interviewed. Well, why don't we start by, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you got interested in uh, U.S. soccer history? Okay. Um, I was the best striker in Sofia and not in Paris. <laughs> in my dreams, kidding. Uh, I have, in fact, two wooden legs. That's why I actually started uh, uh, researching soccer. Um, a few words how I started. So I went to Boston College and Exchange Program. I was interested in immigration to the United States at that time. And uh, I took a couple of uh, sports history courses. I wanted to write about uh, soccer because I didn't know much about uh, other major American sports. People were laughing at me, including the professor. They said, it's not enough. Uh, it needs to be a 30-page paper. You can probably write a couple pages on U.S. soccer because uh, history of that sport didn't exist. I was a little stubborn. Continue to uh, dig on, uh, figure about the North American Soccer League, about uh, ethnic soccer in the 60s, 50s, 30s, about the American Soccer League and the great uh, books uh, written by Colin Jones and uh, later on uh, Roger Alloway. And uh, after I submitted a paper, which was a fine paper at the time, was encouraged by this professor to uh, continue. Uh, it was a really big challenge to uh, uh, do this because the, f the French uh, didn't really accept it, uh, the project. Uh, I was at first uh, an American civilization major, American studies. I became an historian later on from my PhD studies. Uh, and I was fortunate to uh, convince Jacques Porte, one of the most eminent uh, French-Americanists, really embraced the project. Uh, finding a research advisor, it's not everything. Uh, you need fundings. And uh, I was really lucky to, uh, uh, I was awarded twice the uh, Joao Avalanche uh, scholarship from FIFA based, from uh, Zurich based FIFA. And that's, that's how everything started. And here I am after uh, nine years, nine, nine years later on. And your, your dissertation covered the history of soccer with a particular focus on Massachusetts. Can you tell this us a little bit about that? Absolutely, this is correct. In my dissertation, I researched the popularity of soccer through the lens of uh, uh, immigration. Uh, I later on expanded the study to New England for, for, the, for the book manuscript that I'm uh, currently completing. And uh, the interesting thing is that um, I don't think that you can really write about American soccer because American soccer in New England was uh, one. It was a little different in New York and Pennsylvania. It was totally different in the Midwest, and uh, it's kind of young on the West Coast. So if somebody wants to write about the history of soccer in, 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 in the United States, it's going to be a multiple-volume uh, work. Uh, so that's why I kind of decided to focus on New England, where the history of soccer is unique, because it existed as a, an archaic uh, game practiced by the Native Americans and the, the English colonists, is a pre-modern sport practiced by the Boston elite, and later on as association football, as the game is known to many Americans in the many factories and uh, 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 textile mills uh, in Massachusetts and around New England. And what is really interesting, even in a small state like Massachusetts, 
there are a lot of convergences between the East and the West, and I, I really embraced, embraced the piece of scholarship that you did about uh, Holyoke. Oh, I think one of, one of the reasons that it died there, as you put it down, it was really Anglo-Scottish. Whereas in Eastern Massachusetts, it very quickly diversified and other immigrants got involved. So this is one of the key divergences that you and I have in our scholarships. Um, even though, as we were just saying, your, your book uh, and the dissertation in which it was based uh, focus on, on the whole scope of history, but I thought today we might, uh, given the fact that we're recording this in May of 2014 on the eve of the, the, the World Cup, I thought we might talk a little bit about the 1950 World Cup because you had the opportunity to interview several of the players who had uh, who had had been a part of of that uh, U.S. squad. Uh, the 1950 World Cup, of course, is probably most well known in this country because of the famous uh, win over England. Uh, so uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the um, the men that you interviewed and and maybe how those interviews came about. Absolutely, this is a good question, excellent question. Uh, my case study um, covers more than hundred years of history, and on different periods, I depend on different sources. And uh, for this particular period, uh, uh, the chapter of my dissertation and uh, soon to be book uh, is titled "The Ghettoization of American Soccer." Um, so I had the privilege uh, uh, and the honor to interview uh, five of the players of the U.S. Uh, national team in 1950. And probably one of the most interesting of them uh, and important for my study is John Souza. John Souza was born in Fall River, Massachusetts in 1920. His parents were immigrants from, uh, from, uh, from the Portuguese islands uh, in the uh, Atlantic, the Azores. And um, he said something very interesting. He started his interview with like a very, very interesting comment. He says, uh, I was born in Fall River, and all we did was play soccer. We played the Irish, we played the French. I think by uh, saying uh, the French, he referred to French Canadians. He said, every section in Fall River had a soccer team, and they played against each other. And I would like to um, um, say how he learned to play and the, the teams that he played for that uh, John Sousa played was Aruda Groceries. It was a Portuguese grocery store, and the owner uh, actually had a, a soccer team. They also had a lot of um, uh, social clubs. He later on played for the Portuguese Club of Providence. And uh, that was actually one of the first teams that, that paid him money to play. He was playing, he was, um, he was receiving $3 per match. Uh, and uh, a little bit later on, he started playing for the Ponte Delgado FC. And Ponte Delgado was actually a very interesting team. It was predominantly Portuguese team. Mm-hmm. And um, at some point, um, John Sousa started playing for, for a team in New York. He was working uh, for Firestone in Fall River. And when I say Firestone, they weren't doing tires. I think they were doing tanks. And uh, um, uh, some of them were used by the military. And at some point, he would just travel from Fall River to New York to play for a team called the German Hungarians. And his, uh, his employers at Firestone weren't that happy because uh, sometimes he would come back injured. He couldn't play on Monday. He couldn't, uh, I'm sorry, work on Monday. So that was interesting. And, and after a while, he had an offer to move to New York, which he did. 
So you say that he was earning uh, money, $3 a match early on, and then maybe a little bit more later, but yet he still had to have a factory job. So would you classify him as a fully professional player or maybe semi-pro? He was not a fully professional. Let me just talk a little bit more on that, because when he moved to New York, to the Queens, and uh, uh, he was hired by the... uh, owner of the German Hungarians, who, who also had a, a textile factory. And it's uh, interesting because um, uh, he would uh, sign every year a contract, $3,000. That was a lot of money back in the 50s because this, uh, this fellow wanted to uh, make sure that he would play for him. And uh, in Fall River, he was making at some point $15 per match. But for the German Hungarians, he would earn $50 per match. So you see, that's a big difference, 15 and 50. And uh, he said that because of this money, he was able to retire at the age of 57, which was kind of uh, early. You know, industrial workers would probably work much longer. So he was able to retire at this age and move to Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was a semi-professional, but very well-paid semi-professionals. We can talk probably about his teammates, Walter Barr, who uh, was born in Kensington, uh, uh, just outside Philadelphia, and the other fellows from St. Louis. Walter Barr, who was a physical education teacher, was playing in the American uh, Soccer League, the, the one that actually was semi-pro after the uh, mm-hmm. truly professional uh, the, American Soccer League of the 20s. Right, the ASL2, sometimes called. Correct. And uh, he said in his interview, which was very interesting, that uh, at a very, during, during a very good season... He would match the money uh, from pro, uh, semi-pro soccer uh, with the money that he was earning as a as a, a physical educa- education teacher. So he would met, uh, make uh, considerably less than John Souza, who would receive every every at the beginning of his, each season three thousand dollars, which was a big chunk of money at that point. Mm-hmm. Not counting the money that he would he would receive after after each game. Uh, and the other fellows from uh, St. Louis, uh, Harry Keo. Uh, Frank Borghi, Gino Periani. Uh, some of them didn't make money, or uh, they would make money. Uh, 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 they would sell, sell them make money. Uh, Harry Key would say uh, they were making. Uh, they, they, they would be given from uh, Curtis Finner home. They would. Uh, he, he, play, he played uh, for a team of an undertaker for a while. He said that he would make. Uh, he would earn five dollars for a win, uh, two dollars for a for a draw, and. Uh, I think they would make a buck for for a loss. He said, "Does it make me a uh, professional?" And he left. Obviously. <laughs> now, many of these men also uh, lost several of their prime playing years because of uh, the Second World War. Did they talk about that experience at all in the interviews? This is correct. I think the only uh, the only person who didn't serve in the and most of them served in the, in the military. The only person who. Uh, I'm not sure if Harry Keel served in the military. I think he did, actually. Uh, some of them are annoyed by the movie that was released, uh, which was originally called Game of Their Life. And after that, they changed uh, the title to uh, The Miracle Match because, uh, because there were already movies uh, with that title. Uh, I think they were annoyed by the fact that they uh, shot him in the movie as uh, party guys who were drinking and smoking. And uh, they said we were born in the Depression. Nobody, nobody had any alcohol or smokes. Because they were uh, they were serious athletes. Um, uh, John Sousa served in the in the in the in the Navy, if I'm not wrong. Walter Barr didn't for sure, 
and I was really profoundly touched by by a story that uh, Frank Borgi told me. Told me he was uh, involved in D Day. Uh, he actually was on one of the beaches under a hail of bullets, and next to him there was a German soldier who was agonizing. He took off his coat and covered the, the body of the German uh, soldier that was agonizing. So. I think that was really novel, and I was profoundly touched by this by this yeah, story. That's an incredible story. Absolutely. So, how did the men then, after the war, they came back and presumably took up uh, playing again? And how did they um, come to play for the national team? This is a very interesting point. Uh, I think most of the people were from St. Louis because Walter Giesler was selecting the team, and obviously he wanted to uh, make people from the northeast. Uh, as well, and John Sousa was considered at that point as one of the finest players. Uh, mm-hmm. One and of he had fi- also represented the United States uh, in various matches in Cuba and Mexico. I think, right? Absolutely, and that was very interesting because at some point Ponte Delgado, uh, they were playing in the Southern New England Soccer League. They won the uh, Doers Cup. And they also won, they were dual champions, they also won the U.S. Challenge Cup. So that's why the uh, United States Football Association uh, just decided, instead of uh, organizing tryouts and fielding a U.S. team, just decided to uh, ask Ponte Delgado to represent the uh, uh, United States. And they, they went to Cuba, they played in 47, and uh, John Sousa actually gave me a very interesting picture. Uh, it's not a very good quality, but... Uh, uh, Ponte Delgado, actually, uh, the entire team uh, represented the United States for this tournament qualifiers. So the U.S. then qualifies for the 1950 World Cup, and they head down to uh, Brazil. What what did the the guys say about their experiences actually in the tournament? Uh, that's very interesting. I remember speaking to Harry Keel uh, and uh, also to uh, John Souza. About it, and they said we were scared. Actually, they were scared that you know they were facing uh, the best team probably in the world because uh, England crushed uh, many national teams in friendly games before that. Um, um, well, as you, you, as you just described, it's probably no wonder they were frightened, as they were um, semi-professionals and uh, maybe hadn't really had a lot of experience playing but, together. But, Facing Stanley Matthews, Mortens, and some of the best professionals uh, at some of the best English teams at the time. Uh, but I think, and, and ask him, uh, obviously they were scared. All of them, they said that they played a, an exceptional game, and they, they were also lucky. The, the, the ball just, the English, they were pressuring, they were shooting from all angles. It was one of these days that just, just the, 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 the ball wouldn't go behind the American uh, goal line in the American net. Mm-hmm. And, they and, and, with- they, and they almost scored the second one actually it was Walter By described he just uh, kicked the ball he said it was a little bit like a loose ball he didn't really uh, aim to do this point uh, uh, Joe Gidgens kind of rushed and kind of just probably touched the ball and slightly changed the direction and the English goalkeeper wasn't expecting this and ended up at his net and as you pointed out or Roger Alloy pointed out there was a clip of this uh, uh, there are a couple of clips actually German clips uh, and it's very interesting. So in the few minutes we have left, why don't you tell us what you're currently working on, Stephen? Absolutely. I'm completing uh, my manuscript. Uh, again, I expanded a little bit uh, the this, this scope. It, uh, it has to do with New England. I don't have a, a very good case on um, Vermont or uh, some parts of Maine, 
but a lot of leagues actually fill the teams in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. So definitely there are multiple states involved uh, in New England. And the last chapter that I'm currently working on, uh, it's titled um, Beyond Beckham's Galaxy. It's got to do with the most recent challenges that uh, Major League Soccer faces. And those cha challenges are the following. Uh, I think that the league uh, really has uh, lost the battle for respectful uh, attendances and uh, uh, TV ratings. But on the other hand, um, video games such as uh, FIFA Soccer could have a, a positive impact on the long term for the development of the league. And why? This is because of the live features, because uh, this video game has changed so dramatically over the last decade. Right now, they're live features. And uh, let's say uh, if you pick up uh, the New England Revolution and MLS is one of the leagues in this uh, video game, or uh, I pick up uh, the New York uh, Red Bulls, and uh, if you have injured players in the Red Bulls, and New England plays with uh, full strength, uh, this will be actually applied in our uh, 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 teams uh, in FIFA soccer. Uh, so in order to be competitive, one needs to either tune to a... Um, soccer match on TV, or click on the website of MLS. In either, in either case, this is revenue for the league. Oh, okay. And it, it, also, it also helps, uh, the game helps uh, young Americans to be educated, to learn about tactics, to learn about uh, um, some foreign teams, if you wish. So it, it's a great educational tool. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe key to the future of uh, U.S. soccer. Absolutely, absolutely, because FIFA soccer... Uh, is uh, the most successful sports game globally. But in the United States, uh, it sells about 50% of what uh, uh, entertainment art sells uh, uh, in terms of NFL modern. But in real life, MLS, it's not 50% of the popularity and success of NFL. Right. So this is a very interesting point. And uh, uh, FIFA soccer is catching up uh, very quickly with the basketball game. So those are, those are very, very interesting observations, and nobody has ever written about uh, video games and their impact on professional leagues. Well, sports. I look forward to reading it. Absolutely. All right, thank you for joining me on the Soccer History USA podcast. My pleasure, Brian. I really enjoy your podcast, and I'm uh, looking forward to be listening to the podcast. Thank you for listening to the Soccer History USA podcast. For episode notes, please visit the website at www.soccerhistoryusa.org and follow me on Twitter at Soccer History US. <laughs>